You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about recent updates to the NIH guidelines regarding COVID-19. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. I'm glad to be here again today to talk about this topic. So, John, last time we talked about this, you mentioned outpatient management for COVID-19. What can you tell us about this as it relates to the circulating variants in the U.S. currently? Yeah, so, Mariana, this is, a, I think, a timely topic. Um, So, there's, you know, since the last time we've done this, I think this is the guidelines have been updated a few times. But in the last couple of weeks, there was just another one. Uh, in um, in early November of 2022. So the most important thing I just tell you, make sure you check the guidelines. If there's something you're doing for treatment, a lot of the oral medications aren't changing, but some of the um, some of the monoclonal antibodies are. Some of that is changing. But as you know, the NIH guidelines, they you know they're they're very good, and and they have a whole section on outpatient management um, that have had some changes. The inpatient stuff, you know, we don't see as many patients on the inpatient side. Um, and a lot of that's done either in the IC or by some of the infectious disease specialists. But um, I wanted to cover a little bit on variants, and that's kind of what you would just ask, Mariana, about circulating variants. So there, there, um, variants, uh, there's been a bit of rapid increase in some of these SARS-CoV-2 Omicron subvariants that are circulating in the United States. And, and um, they're likely, uh, some of the, the, the anti-SARS COVID-2 monoclonal antibodies are going to be resistant to, uh, with some of these variants, meaning that the, these some of these monoclonal antibodies might not work. So there's a whole bunch of subvariants. So as you know, in the in the bivalent, it's it's BA4, BA5. I believe those are the two that are in that bivalent um, bivalent booster that people are getting. But there's different subvariants. There's BQ1. There's BQ.1.1. That's definitely going to be resistant. Likely going to be resistant to the bevacizumab. Um, and some of the other subvariants that are out there is 4.6. Um, there's a .2.75.2. There's a BF7, a BQ1, and a BQ1.1. These are going to be likely resistant to um, uh, tixagevimab plus uh, silgavimab. So if you remember, that was the EVU shell. That's the one, Mariana. Remember we talked about this. This is the one that is the drug for um, uh, for prevention. Like the 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 it's like the prep for COVID, uh, the pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, drug. And it's you know that's going to be used for people who can't get vaccinated or have had some severe reactions. But there's going to be an anticipated loss of susceptibility. Uh, and it's based on some of the amino acid substitutions that have occurred in the SARS-CoV-2 uh, subvariants that are going to confer antibody resistance uh, in uh, based on 
some of the in vitro neutralization studies. So I encourage all of you to take a look. Um, the, if you search CDC and COVID um, variants, there's a nice website that actually has a um, basically a uh, um, uh, a, uh, a listing of all the different variants that are that are currently um, circulating in, in the United States and what the percentages are. In addition to that, uh, very neatly as it relates to HRSA and as as it relates to uh, even our AETCs, what we do, each of those uh, percentages is actually broken out by individual uh, um, region, right? So like our region, I think is region two. It's you know covers New York, New Jersey, um, uh, Puerto Rico, and, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So the, so even the subvariants that we <clears throat> the, the percentage of subvariants that we're looking at are caught out by by those individual territories that, that are identical to the way the ATC lays out. What's interesting, I think, on some level, because you know it kind of relates to to where where we are. But well, all I want to just make sure people know is that um, these different variants are increasing. Um, their prevalence, uh, some of the prevalence is currently low or moderate, but um, some of these, like uh, some of these new lineages, are really increasing, and they're and they're in the 30 range. So you really kind of have to look at them and see, you know, whether or not um, the, those drugs are actually going to be, or whether or not the the monoclonal antibodies are going to be effective against against these certain variants. Thanks, John. That's really important, and obviously these things are also changing on a regular basis too. So you know, we need to keep checking on what's circulating out there. Um, yeah, I think that's the most important thing, right? Is definitely Mariana making sure that people check your check your individual area. Um, you may have potentially have DOH level data for some of these variants, but I know for us, you know, for for what I look at, I look at the CDC website, and it's usually a, they call it a nowcast, and it has updated data, which is pretty close to, to to the same day. It's not exactly, but it's usually within a week. All right. So let's get into some treatment specifics now as we talk about these guidelines. So the COVID-19 treatment guidelines, they uh, currently as of today, but again, just be cautious and check them for possible changes. They continue to recommend bevtilevimab for the treatment of COVID-19 only if um, Paxlovid, which is the ritonavir boosted nirmatrelvir or remdesivir cannot be used. So I want to caution you on bevtilevimab. So when you look at the circulating variants that are happening in our area, um, most of those variants are, uh, rebeptilevimab is going to, is not going to work for those individual variants. So if you don't have another option for people, I guess you could use it, but we clearly have other options here for, for treatment. So I encourage people to kind of really, you know, think about this. I, I don't think you're going to see much bebtilevimab use right now with these Omicron subvariants being, uh, being circulated. So right now the, the Vertonavir boosted nirmatrelvir, remdesivir, and then you also have on the pure as well, these are all expected to be active against these subvariants. So when we talk about resistance to these drugs, we're talking more resistance to the, the monoclonal antibodies, the small molecule compounds like nomatrovir, remdesivir, molnupiravir, there, there really hasn't been resistance reported yet, at least to a point where these drugs would not be not be work. So not not be working. So today we've seen really no resistance with these meds and in the different subvariants. And I think I think you can be confident that they will work to treat somebody if they have um, if they have SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, infection. The panel continues to recommend the anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibodies, tixagevimab and sogavimab. And again, this is the, the Evusheld um, for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Again, continue to check back for guideline changes here as well, uh, because I can tell you that some of the subvariants uh, that the ticks and the silga will not work against some of these uh, Omicron subvariants. But I will say this, um, 
It's going to depend on what the number is in your area, but some providers may still decide to use it if there's no other option for people. If they, if they, if they're, again, this is for prevention. So if they, if none of the vaccines are on the table for that patient or, um, or they've gotten the, the Evusel before and they need to get redosed, providers may still consider or potentially still use this. But again, right now, the guidelines haven't said not to use it, but again, just be aware that that may change in the future. So again, I encourage you to take take a look at that. But um, especially, um, uh, you know, if they do experience signs and symptoms of COVID, they really should be tested for these patients that are that are requiring the the prevention med. And if they're infected, obviously medical attention and get consideration for some of these small molecule um, antiviral treatments. The panel again is going to really closely monitor the prevalence of these circulating subvariants and especially those with marked reduction in susceptibility of the MABs. And so we'll have to see what that changes for Beptilovimab and, and Tixa, Jevimab plus Silgavimab for PrEP. And all that's going to be updated, I think, in, in the future um, as these subvariants increase. That is a lot of information. So what is the bottom line regarding outpatient management of COVID-19? Yeah, so so again, this is going to be for Mariana for people who actually have diagnosed COVID. Like, what do you do for those patients? So whether you've been hospitalized or sorry, whether or not you've been vaccinated or not, you know, what do you do for patients who who are non hospitalized? What are the guidelines recommend? So the first thing, this is an order of preference. The first thing is that the ritonavir boost in your matchelvir. This is an A two A recommendation. This is a, a twice daily for five days, uh, and then also for pediatric patients as well, as long as they're over twelve and they weigh at least 40 kilograms. These are for mild to moderate cases who are at high risk of disease progression. Initiate treatment as soon as possible within five days of symptom onset. That's an important piece too. Like even if it's a couple of days later, after symptoms, you can still get this drug. Uh, in addition, this may be used in patients who are hospitalized if, they're, uh, if they have a diagnosis other than COVID-19. So let's say they come in and they get, have a diagnosis of, um, of something else and then um, and they're on PECs, you know, they're on the, the ritonavir boost of their match over here. They can continue to get it in, in the hospital. Uh, we have reviewed the drug interactions before. I won't spend too much time on this, but just as a reminder, significant drug-drug interactions are because of the ritonavir component of this combination. So clinicians and providers and patients really should, and pharmacists should really be reviewing the, the meds that patients are on and asking about over-the-counter meds too, herbal supplements, recreational drugs, to avoid any potential big drug-drug interactions here. Um, we talked about the Liverpool as a great resource and the CDC, and also the New York State DOH has excellent resources for this as well. Um, <clears throat> so next, um, the next thing, if you can't get uh, retinavir boosted or match of your remdesivir is also an option. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's only by infusion only, so it does have some limitations, but that is also an option for some patients. And then the following drug should only be used when, when neither of the first two drugs, either um, uh, uh, ritonavir, brucinamachavir, or remdesivir are unavailable or, or can't be used. And these are listed in alphabetical order. So beptilovimab, that's the MAB. Again, look back at the guidelines. I think this may change. Uh, molnupiravir, panel does recommend against the use of molnupiravir for the treatment of COVID-19 in pregnant patients. And we'll talk about that in a second, unless there's no other options uh, and therapy is clearly indicated. Um, and this is dosed at 800 milligrams twice a day for five days as well. It's an alternative uh, uh, in patients with mild to moderate COVID-19, but only when the retinavir boosted nermatrovir and remdesivir are not, not available or not feasible to be able to be used. So molnupiravir, while effective on some level, really is kind of a kind of a second line drug um, that you would use after if you can't get remdesivir or you, or you can't 
access ritonavir boosted nermatrelvir. John, can you talk a little bit about the role of molnupiravir in pregnancy? I know there are some limitations, and I'm not sure that we've covered this in the past. Yeah, so this is an important point because I don't think we have covered this, Marianne. I think we've talked about molnupiravir before, but I don't think we covered the pregnancy stuff. Just a couple of things. Um, uh, it, it should not be given to pregnant patients unless there's no other options. And usually you can come up with some other option besides that. Uh, and now also people who engage in sexual activity that may result in conception should really use effective contraception following, uh, during and following treatment with molnupiravir. If you have a hospitalized patient, um, molnupiravir may be considered in patients who are hospitalized for, for some other diagnosis. But again, you'd probably be using other, other medications there. Um, for <clears throat> individuals of childbearing potential, and those clinicians really should be assessing the patient's pregnancy status before initiating molnupiravir. So just a little bit more on this topic to cover some more detail. So in the guidelines, they recommend that patients of childbearing potential should be counseled about abstaining from sex or using reliable contraception for the duration of therapy and for up to four days after taking molnupiravir. But when you're done with treatment at five days, you do four more days, <clears throat> making sure you're really, you know either abstaining or using reliable contraception uh, for for uh, for the duration of therapy. Uh, reproductive toxicity has been reported in some of the animal studies of molnupiravir, and it may be mutagenic during, mutagenic during pregnancy. And that's why this is the recommendation. In fact, when you look at the FDA, the emergency use authorization, there's even a statement in there that men even of reproduction reproductive potential who are sexually active with individuals of childbearing potential should be counseled to either abstain or use a reliable method of contraception for at least three months after the last dose of molnupiravir. So for the females, four days, but for the males, after, after you stop molnupiravir, for three months after that last dose of molnupiravir, effective contraception and um, uh, or abstaining from sex, if you're having sex with somebody, you want to make sure that you don't get them pregnant during that three-month period. And it also cites data that shows that molnupiravir does have fetal toxicity and it has been reported in some of the animal studies. However, when other therapies are not available, pregnant people with COVID-19, again, if you're at high risk for progressing the severe disease, may reasonably choose molnupiravir therapy um, as long um, after being fully informed, particularly if they're beyond the time of embryo embryogenesis, which is basically beyond 10 weeks of gestation. Real caution there, right? Just be really careful. It's a big discussion, I think, with your provider. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think most patients would, would probably do this, but again, there is a chance that you could. Um, the patient should also be informed about the pregnancy surveillance program and offer that opportunity to participate. You can actually let people know that you were taking molnupiravir during pregnancy. For lactating mothers, so again, different from pregnancy, but lactation, there's currently a lack of data here. And since molnupiravir has been had some teratogenistic effects um, um, and infants are exposed to the drug through breastfeeding, the FDA EUA also talks about lactating patients should not breastfeed their infants during treatment and for four days after the final dose. So basically pumping and discarding the breast milk and then maintaining the supply during this time and the time is recommended. So really, I think the most important thing here is just gotta be careful with molnupiravir in pregnancy. I don't think anybody would ever go there if you're pregnant. Molnupiravir is probably not gonna be an option for you, but again, there are some, are some definitely some, um, uh, some things to think about, uh, again, as it relates to men and also women who may potentially be uh, 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 you know, as far as protection uh, and making sure that you have effective contraception ar around the doses of molnupiravir. So we talked about a lot <clears throat> today. Any final thoughts as we begin to wrap up? 
Uh, yeah, just one more thing. You know, I think we get we get asked about a lot of the efficacy of these meds. People ask, ask I get asked this question all the time. You know, especially if somebody that you that might be a family member or somebody close to a family member, they come to you and they ask, you know, which one should which, you know my doctor's offering this? What should I do? You know, should I even bother taking it? You know, I, I think there's there's a lot of drug interactions, right, with their matchovir, and that's one of the big I think considerations. And there's not many with molnupiravir. But although the different COVID-19 treatments, they haven't been compared directly, this molnupiravir versus their matchovir, ritonavir, the guidelines recommend molnupiravir only if the ritonavir boosted in their matchovir or remdesivir are not available. So, so let me just say that again. So the guidelines tell you that molnupiravir is a second-line drug after, if you can't use your matchovir, ritonavir, or remdesivir. So really, the molnupiravir really is a kind of a second line. And, and really, when you look back, uh, and you look at the data, molnupiravir really had lower efficacy um, than these other two options when, when you look at the studies. See, again, it's hard to do cross-study comparisons, but the numbers are, 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 are that different. So while whether molnupiravir reduces the risk of hospitalization or death in people who are vaccinated and at high risk of progressing um, to severe COVID-19 is really still unclear. Some of the observational studies have evaluated the effect of molnupiravir in some of the non-hospitalized patients. Um, or high risk of, of progressing a severe disease, including some patients who received um, COVID-19 vaccinations. But the, these studies really have some limitations. And that's the main reason for the difference why the nermaxilvir boosted with ritonavir and remdesivir are quote-unquote preferred, I guess, over the, over the molnupiravir. That's an important point for us to know, um, you know, uh, coming, out of this, uh, coming out of this podcast. John, thanks so much for joining us and giving us the most up-to-date information on the COVID-19 pandemic from the NIH. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.